This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time to talk politics, and I am anxious to hear our panelists' take on Doug Ford's cabinet choices, including his young nephew. At the federal level, we're still seeing an inability to deliver basic public services like passport renewals and airport security and glaring errors like sending a rather senior diplomat a party celebrating Russia's National Day. And there are lots of excuses from a government that, frankly, seems very tired. A lot of people believe the liberal government is on its last legs. And in light of that, what to make of the state of play in the conservative leadership contest? And yes, Ottawa is preparing for Truckers' Convoy Protest 2.0. Will that preparation prevent an occupation like we saw last numbers? People out there, what do you think? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now, the Recovering Politicians Panel. And now I'd like to welcome Howard Hampton, former leader of the Ontario NDP and special guest recovering politicians, David Peterson, former Liberal Ontario Premier and former Conservative Senator Hugh Siegel. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us. It's a joy to be here with you and these fine gentlemen. Okay, great. (laughs) Let us begin with Hugh, since we're talking about uh, progressive conservatives. Uh, the, the cabinet choices uh, that Doug Ford made, what's your take? I think that um, in view of the people who, uh, who stood down and were not going to offer again in the last election, I think he has a pretty well-balanced cabinet. Uh, I think the new Minister of Health is someone who has shown herself to be quite competent. As a solicitor general, it is a tough ministry. It has a high learning curve, as my colleagues on the panel will remember. Uh, but I think she's the kind of person who will be able to address the issues. And more importantly, I think she'll have the clout at cabinet to get changes and improvements as required. So I think that's a good appointment. I don't have a view on the appointment of his nephew. I mean, I know nothing about his nephew other than he served in in, on the school board and in city council with a fair measure of competence, and whether or not he was the right person to have that particular job, well, as uh, the premier on the line will know, uh, that's always a very subjective judgment. And uh, there might have been other people who would be better, but the notion that the premier would want to give uh, a young, newly elected uh, MPP who did defeat a long-standing member of the other party uh, a chance is not in and of itself intrinsically bad. Okay, David Peterson, do you agree with that? Well, look, I think I think we've got to hope for the best uh, all the way around. There's some very good people in the cabinet, and there's some experience. Sylvia, who act, happens to be uh, my representative, uh, has been a, there a long time. She actually she's been the center of of um, 
politics in the Caledon area. She was an assistant and, and to the members of Parliament, then to the member of Parliament, and a variety of, of, of portfolios. And she's been very diligent, very loyal, and very competent. Um, let me tell you, it's the toughest, in some ways, the toughest portfolio, roughly half the budget, and enormous pressures. And um, it's 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 not a place for great partisanship. It, it's a place where you have to draw people together from all walks of life. A lot of your constituents are not going to like you. Everybody's going to want more. And it's a very, very difficult portfolio to keep on top of for anybody and any party at any time. So, uh, look, I, I wish her well. Uh, with respect to Michael Ford, I, I think that um, there were some good people elected, new, new people elected, and there's no question that the premier took some capital out of the bank to support his his uh, nephew. Um, if it turns out all right, probably won't hurt him. But it it's, it 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 has uh, it has the aroma of some of his uh, previous behavior that that he changed and people didn't like and uh and so could hurt him but look he's he's got lots of political capital yeah boy yes he won fair and square he ran a uh, they ran a very fine, fine campaign uh, now i i understand there was low voter voter turnout uh, i understand that the election was a snoozer in a lot of ways and um and I do know that it's all downhill for him, as it would be for anybody that's elected with that's, that kind that's, of a big majority. That's interesting. Howard Hampton, one of the big stories of the election, such as it is, was that the PCs made some gains at the expense of the NDP in traditional NDP strongholds. They made alliances with uh, labor, with uh, quite a number of unions, though not the biggest ones. How hard will it be going forward for the NDP in the light of that? And do you think this is a one-time thing, or is this going to be the new situation? Um. I, I don't think there's anything novel here. I mean, the the, the reality is that a, a lot of the construction unions will vote for whoever promises more construction, and and that was one of the centerpieces of uh, the conservative campaign was uh, uh, you know a lot more construction. So I, I I wasn't surprised by that at all, and I think most people in the labor movement wouldn't be surprised by that. Um, did the NDP uh, wins lose some seats that they should have won? Absolutely, and I think there's going to be some internal questions uh, asked about how that uh, how that could happen and who was asleep at the switch. But do I see some sort of fundamental realignment here? Not at all. Uh, in, in elections like this, um, where you've got in many ridings uh, real three party races, uh, it will depend on. Uh, if you know 200 votes here, 200 votes there, but uh, there's no fundamental uh, switch here. On the earlier question, I just want to offer a slightly different opinion. Um, I think appointing your nephew to the cabinet uh, has the potential to create lots of problems. You have a very large caucus. You have a lot of people who have aspirations to serve in the cabinet. They have aspirations to show what they can do. 
uh, and appointing a, a near relative into the cabinet, I think, sends the wrong message to people in your own caucus. I also think it invites trouble in another way. Uh, my work in politics, I always said uh, we keep this, uh, we follow some fairly strict rules, and the strict rules are we always deal with people not on the basis of you are my friend, not on the basis that you know, you're my cousin or my nephew, but on the basis that uh, you, you are a constituent, uh, I'm your elected member, uh, we, we, under, we understand that you know, this is what the relationship's going to be. I think it'll be very difficult for Doug Ford if his nephew gets into any kind of hot water or if there's any kind of controversy. I think the media will uh, look at that and be looking for those kinds of, of things. Oh, I'm, I'm sure Sylvia. that we, the media, would would uh, eat that up. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah but, but I think he probably has a while, given his performance, where uh, he, he can basically do what he wants. Hugh Siegel, do you think that uh, th- there's a new kind of alignment that will stick in terms of uh, the progressive conservatives picking up all those NDP seats with support from the unions, albeit construction unions? Well, um, Libby, just to go back to a little bit of history, when Mr. Davis rewon his majority in 1981, he largely rewon it with a series of NDP seats. Uh, the Liberals held their strength. And the main party platform in the 81 election was something called the Board of Industrial Leadership and Development. Bill. It was called I Bill. remember That's that right. you so well. And, 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 and you would not be surprised to know that part of what Bill had for every one of the projects, there was going to be an automotive technology center, an electronics technology center, a mining technology center. And what, what it, there was a map of the province, and what we put on that map was the possible sites where these places might be. And guess what? Most of those sites were in swing ridings where the votes were close. And guess what? We won a lot of them. That is not wildly different from uh, what uh, Howie Hampton said about uh, what the Ontario Progressive Conservatives did in this last campaign. They promised construction, building highways, building widening, for a million, all of which, if you're in the construction unions in particular, is very attractive. That's why Leuna came on side, and that's understandable. But did that produce a fundamental shift in our politics? I don't think so. And I don't think what happened in 81 produced a fundamental shift in our politics because, you know, things like an NDP government happened thereafter in which Mr. Hampton served with great distinction as Attorney General. So I don't think there's any structural change that is going to be more fundamental than the normal shifts that take place in any campaign. But, but Hugh, and, and let David jump in here. It happened after 40 years of conservatives here in Ontario. Well, uh, look, uh, there, were, there were no, are you trying to argue the point there were no fundamental shifts for 40 years, 42 years? I, there was the longest serving regime. Right. Are we, are we headed for another Albania, one? Albania, <laughs> that I'm aware of, and then we lucked in in 1985. None of these were, should we say, fundamental shifts. Every, in my, my experience with all of this, each election is unique with unique players 
and with different relative strengths at a point in time. And what's true in one election is not necessarily true in another election. Those that assumed that the Conservatives would go on forever were, were wrong. And those that assumed that we coming off a big a majority were going to stay there forever were wrong, or that the NDP who got defeated. Everybody's been defeated, and they, sometimes they defeat themselves, and sometimes others defeat them. So I don't regard this last election as fundamental in any way. The unions were are opportunistic, like other people, like political parties. And Hugh described the opportunism, and uh, you know, in the eighty-one Davis government, and in the uh, and the Ford uh, 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 a platform, which was very similar in so many ways. Build it was called build. It was they were building nuclear plants, uh, Hugh, and uh, lots of yep. other things. Yep. And they looked. The government looked very positive. And then I remember that election, Hugh, because they tagged Stuart Smith, the then leader, with Dr. No, this yep. creepy creature out of, out of, uh, well, out of a James Bond movie. You know, we should remember doing the commercials. We should have had that conversation during the election. Would be we'd have a picture of a bill that had been presented to the legislature, which the leader of the opposition, by definition, would oppose. Well, we had a picture of the bill. It would have a title like, the Better Safety for Children's Act, and then a stamp, no, right across the front of it saying Stuart Smith voted no, right? So, you know, I mean, it's what happens in politics. You get a touch of overstatement and exaggeration to make the point. Just, just a touch, though. Just, 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 just a touch. Just just a a touch. touch. <laughs> well, and, and, I, and don't I, forget, Huey was the chief propagandist, and yeah. he was good at it. And, uh, you know, I only think that he's such a decent guy. He's basically a liberal. So that's the problem. So, so is, uh, so I guess Corey tonight is also pretty good at it. But let's turn to what's going on in Ottawa. Howard Hampton, I mean, you know, Tom Mulcair, uh, the former federal NDP opposition leader wrote, I thought, a brilliant co- column on all around incompetence, just in, in the basics in Ottawa. Yes, I well, I, it, I think Tom Mulcair has written uh, several <laughs> opinion pieces like that over the last few years, which is why uh, so often the media turns to him uh, to to be a spokesperson on things. Look, the, uh, p- part of the problem I think uh, the Liberals have federally is uh, they have created great expectations, um, and uh, they have. Uh, made a lot of announcements on all kinds of fronts. Let's just take climate change, for example. If you listen to the announcements about climate change targets, etc., and this is going to happen and that's going to happen, and then you look at the results, in almost every case, they have fallen short. And and so uh, you know, I think Tom is right. It's a government that is very good at making announcements and very good at getting sound bites. But at a certain point, you have to deliver. And you know, earlier today, I was you know, just tuning in uh, the media, uh, and uh, you have uh, people who actually work in customs and work in airports saying, you know, what's going on here is not, uh, this is not an emergency, this is not revolutionary, this all should have been expected. Summertime is when people travel. Coming out of COVID, people will want to travel more. Someone in the government was very much asleep at the switch in not realizing that people would want passports. That people would want to, you know, people a whole would be lot of people, if you ask me, were asleep, asleep at the switch. Uh, 
you, but okay, a lot of people are also, they're just sick of Justin Trudeau, but will the conservatives be able to capitalize on that? What do you think of the state of the race? Well, um, the conservatives can capitalize on it, as opposition parties do every 10 years, roughly, when a government gets changed, providing they don't choose a leader who would, in a substantial way, appear to be worse to a majority of Canadian voters than Mr. Trudeau. And remember, voting is not about who do you prefer to be in the government. Often it's about who do you want to prevent from getting into the government. So that will really depend whether they are contenders or not on whether they choose a competent, uh, I would say, middle-of-the-road, thoughtful, coherent leader, or whether they choose someone else. And I don't know that anybody can predict the outcome. So the ability of the Liberals to be competitive in the next general election, uh, in my view, has yet to be determined in any kind of final way. And while I agree that, you know, normally when things don't go well, you, 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 you blame the guy who's the head of the organization, you blame the prime minister or the president, as the case may be. But I think Ottawa's problems go beyond the competence of any cabinet. I think it goes right to the way in which the public service and the way in which services are delivered now being managed. So if you think about the airport problem, which uh, Howard Hampton raised so articulately, the problem is just this, you know, CATSA, the Canadian Air Transport Security Agency, actually doesn't run on only its own employees. It hires people from third-party private providers to do the staff work. Those people were let go when the airports closed because, or were not operating because of the health shutdowns. They drifted off to other jobs. And uh, to make the point that Howard made, no one has really engaged early enough to figure out how the restaffing had to be really uh, jumped up to ensure that you could deal with Canadians legitimately wanting to travel now that they can. So I think there's some issues to be asked about the structure of the civil service, the management, and by the way, uh, the way in which there are incentives in the civil service to actually do things properly and no disincentives just to rag the puck. I think those are the kinds of issues. That's a structural question that any government that was in power would have to deal with. And uh, I expect that the Liberal government will try to do that pretty quickly. They have a task force in place now, so I don't think they are naive about the extent of the problem. Okay, I mean, and I, I think this is politically incorrect. I mean, you know, I, I, I doubt that a lot of people who were supposed to be working at home were actually working. Uh, but David Peterson, um, the numbers of people signed up for the Conservatives is staggering. Pierre Poilievre says he has signed up over 300,000 people. Um, the, the conventional wisdom around is, no, this guy would never win a general election. But but has he sort of tapped into something? There is no doubt that he's tapped into into something here. I have never witnessed these kinds of crowds in a leadership race, except maybe Trudeau Sr., uh, through Trudeau Media, that many you know, decades ago. Look at the, he's tapped something which is about one step away from Trumpism, so it, it, it registers with a lot of people in this country. To me, that is disconcerting as a Canadian. And if I was a conservative, 
I would be extraordinarily disconcerted about this. I agree with Hugh's view that he just articulated that, uh, you know, there's a great opportunity for the conservatives coming up just because of the sheer weight of the barnacles on the ship of state of the of the liberals. And there there is a certain change, and, and people want change after a certain time. No government ever fulfills all their ambitions, and people lose faith in them after a while. But they come, they come in with a lot of hope and inevitably disappoint some people. But the question is, what's the alternative? And everything I read and every people who are knowledgeable conservatives and friends of mine tell me that uh, Polyev has this thing in a walk, and he's a very different uh opponent for if Justin Trudeau stays, then would be a Jean Charest, for example. Now, I, I, if I was a conservative, I would be, uh, you know, he would be my guy because he's, I mean, I know him well, and he's an extraordinarily fine human being and a great Canadian. And he's a moderate, decent, well-centered gentleman that doesn't try to find boogeymen under every rock. And um, and he appeals to the better parts of our Canadian nature, not our worst parts. And he spans both cultures with uh, uh, in a in a harmonious way. But that that's just my view. People say, "Well, you're a liberal. You like this kind of a guy," uh, and it's true. Uh, but I think the Conservatives are playing with fire. And as they wrestle for the soul of their own party, all this activism is got filled with every sort of. Uh, I'm not saying they're all hate mongers, but there are lots of hate mongers in the group, and uh, it's appealing to the worst parts of the Canadians, not the best parts. Uh, Howard Hampton, are 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 people underestimating things when they say Pierre Poilievre could never get elected in a general election? Well. I- you know, I, I think uh, I think we should all be careful. Uh, there are so many uh, variables, not just in Canada right now, not just in North America, but in the world in terms of the political situation. Uh, let, let, let's take, for example, you know, people are very worried about inflation. They're very worried about the cost of housing. They're very worried about being able to pay their bills, and they're uh, they're, they're getting frustrated and, to a certain degree, angry. A lot's going to depend on how governments adjust to this, how they deal with it. You can see uh, President Biden struggling with this in the United States. Uh, and people won't take the excuse or the rationale that much of this is beyond the control of the government of the day. I mean, what's happening in Ukraine, the effect on world food prices, what's happening in terms of, uh, you know, Boycotting Russian gas and oil, and what what that drive, what that does to the price of gasoline, and what it does to the price of of plastic products, and so on. Many of these things are beyond the control of uh, national governments, provincial governments. But nonetheless, uh, you're likely to get blamed. So the, things are very volatile. They're very very volatile in, in terms of what can happen. But I, on the other side of the coin, I would say this. In the last federal election, and I, I, I worked in two campaigns in the last federal election, uh, the Trudeau government was not popular. And, and, and the Prime Minister Trudeau was not popular. But at the end of the day, people looked at the options and said, well, I, you know, I, I'm not necessarily enthralled by what the government's done, 
But I don't see a viable option. I don't see anybody else that is really viable to vote for. And so the government got reelected, not not with uh, great affection or not with great enthusiasm, but people looked at the other options and said, nope. So, you know, I, I think we've got to be careful with our crystal balls here. There's but Howard, isn't that like the last the world, provincial election? But a lot can happen in the meantime. <laughs> Go ahead, David. But isn't that, Howard, a lot like the last provincial election? There was no huge enthusiasm anywhere, and and none of the opposition party, neither the opposition were going to generate any enthusiasm, so it's content with where they were. Well, I, I think that there is, a, you know, depending on who runs against him, I think that in terms of Trudeau, there is an appetite for change, and there was not one in the provincial election. I think there, that that's pretty fundamentally different. And, and when Ford first got elected, there was a huge appetite for change. Um, we are getting close to the end of our time. Uh, the, the irony about Poilievre is that he's a young man who's never held a job outside being a career politician. And I just saw something saying that he might not even get elected in his riding. Hugh, do you have any uh, insight well, on that? Um, let me say this. You know, uh, he is, if you wish, uh, a child of the taxpayer's purse. Um, all his employment in his career, and nothing dishonorable, is quite remarkable, has been an elected federal member of parliament from that constituency. Uh, that constituency is a rural mix, uh, some urban, uh, quite a bit of suburban, quite a few public servants, by the way, yeah. uh, live in that riding. So the notion that he doesn't have to work hard to get elected in that riding, I think, is unfair to him. He has worked hard, and he has, I think, a strong perception as a strong constituency MP. That being said, uh, if there's a trend that is heading in the other direction, um, uh, then I think he would be in some difficulty. If he's leader of the party, he'll be in another kind of difficulty, which will affect another 305 conservative candidates. So I think we'll see their prospects dim rather extensively, which would put his own writing in a similar context. Okay, um, that's kind of uh, interesting. Um, so in the meantime, with all of this in the mix, uh, uh, David, uh, just very quickly, the prospects for the Ontario Liberals doing a little rebuilding. How's it going? It's tough. They uh, tried once and it didn't work, and they're going to have to try again. Don't forget, the Liberal brand is still strong. Most people... Are, you know, it, uh, most people consider themselves, if not small L, not small, large L liberal, but small L liberal. And it's, it, it's, it's the space in the mid, middle where most people end up. And so it's a question of claiming that territory with inspired leadership. And, uh, you know, there are two or three people looking at it now that, that see an opportunity. It's a grossly undervalued stock. And I think uh, can can put itself back in a position to be a contender, but it's had two very bad rounds and got beaten up pretty badly. But uh, you know, its death has been predicted many times and has been never gone away. So, um, look, some ambitious young person. Name, take, name, please. Uh, uh, well, uh, look, we'll discuss that later. But I know, I know people that are looking at it. And they're good people. It's not easy, but politics isn't easy anyway. Politics is tough. 
I'm not saying you have to be a little unhinged to do it, but I'm telling you it doesn't hurt. <laughs> okay, on that note, we are out of time, and I'm going to wrap things up, and I do want to hear those names on another occasion. In the meantime... I might not tell you. Pardon? I might not tell you. You might not, okay. <laughs> uh, in the me- I'm thanking you anyway. In the meantime, thank you so much, David Peterson, Howard Hampton, and Hugh Siegel. Appreciate pleasure. it. Bye now. Bye-bye. Thanks. All the best. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, patting ourselves on the back for our performance over COVID. That is the conclusion of a report co-authored by our new uh, director of the science advisory table. And we'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Canada handled the first two years of the COVID-19 pandemic and the ensuing upheaval better than other wealthy G10 nations with comparable health care and economic systems. That's the conclusion of new research published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal. It credits Canada's strong performance to the restrictions and public health measures that most people followed, as well as a successful vaccination campaign. Nearly 80% of Canadians have the two doses on board. So what do you think? Is that really a reason for us to be patting ourselves on the back? Are we maybe forgetting about something? Uh, let me give you the numbers. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And Dr. Fahad Razak, the Scientific Director of the COVID-19 Science Advisory Table, is the study co-author, and he joins me, along with York University's Dr. Tamara Daly, who is Director of the University's Center for Aging Research and Education. Thank you both for joining us. I appreciate it. Great to be with you, Libby. Absolutely. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Razak, tell me about the research. First of all, why did you undertake it? And uh, were you surprised by any of the results? Yeah. So, I mean, I think your description of how we did, I want to put a bit of a qualifier on this. So, the, the first is to say that the pandemic was a brutal experience and continues to be for essentially every country globally. And there are no winners here. So the virus uh, devastated our societies, our hospitals. Many, many people died. And the, the focus of this article is not to say we did great. It's to say in this brutal situation, how did we do relative to other countries and what lessons can we take going forward? And there were some positive findings in the sense that although many Canadians died and we had enormous suffering uh, relative to these countries, which are comparable because of, you know, as you said, similar political and economic systems, um, similar healthcare systems, we had among the lowest rate of people getting infected and dying uh, compared to any other country. And we clearly saw some solidarity and rallying among Canadians in that they went out and got the jab, the highest rates of dose one and dose two vaccines in the entire G10, and tolerated very, very difficult and persistent 
public health measures, which were among the most uh, restrictive in the entire G10. So a lot of credit due there as well to the healthcare system that is has one of the lowest capacities uh, in the entire OECD, yet was somehow able to manage these enormous waves of admission. So a lot of credit due to, to Canadians and, and to the healthcare system. And when you put all of those sacrifices in comparison to these other countries, you see overall that Canada did better than most. Dr. Daly, uh, overall, uh, you know, I mean, I see the research. We did better than most. But especially in the first few waves of the pandemic, we had the highest rate and numbers of people dying in long-term care than any other uh, advanced country. And I don't know, I, I just have a feeling that, you know, nobody wants to look at that anymore. People want to forget it. Yeah, uh, thanks, Libby. I, I, I do uh, worry that long-term care may move off of the agenda. And while I do really appreciate looking at the reasons why Canada may have had uh, lower um, rates of infection and lower deaths overall, you're right to point out that in long-term care, we had, especially in wave one and wave two, we had some of the highest in the world. And in addition to that, in Ontario and Quebec, we had uh, some of the most. And I think that uh, some of the structural conditions that are part of the long-term care sector um, contributed uh, to that high death rate. Oh, well, of, of course, Dr. Razak is, I mean, uh, what what about that piece of it? I, I, you, I could not agree more emphatically uh, with both of you. It is a national disgrace and a tragedy what happened in long-term care. Not enough has been done to address it and rectify it. Uh, these are among the most vulnerable people in our society and our family members, our parents, our grandparents, our brothers, our sisters, and we did not do enough to protect them. Our record is very, very uh, negative compared to many other countries in that first and second wave. And there are some signs now that there is, again, a rising signal of increased mortality in the long-term care sector and among older adults. And so we need to rapidly mobilize to address this group that suffered unconscionably during those first few waves. Uh, so, Dr. Razak, what, what are, you know, this study was done to see what lessons we take. So what lessons should we take? Well, I think we need to keep the long-term care lessons as their own distinct and very important area to prioritize. Our study did not look at long-term care as a separate sector. It's been looked at very carefully by a Royal Society report and other reports, including by reports on the science table. And there are extensive recommendations about what has to happen in long-term care to prevent a similar tragedy from, from occurring again. Our study really looked at a much higher level at the country overall. And, you know, I think there is a couple of important takeaways uh, that I want to mention. You know, if you look at our infection and death rates, it, it tells a very compelling story of what we were able to achieve despite these enormous odds. So in the first two years, uh, if you compare us, for example, to the country that had the highest infection rates to France, if we had similar infection rates in Canada, we would have had 9 million more people infected in just the first two years. So a quarter of our population, additional infections. If we had the same death rate as the United States, which was triple what it was in Canada, we'd have had 70,000 more Canadians die in the first two years. 70,000 Canadians, that is an enormous number. That means at a very personal level, 
most of us would probably know an older member of the family or a friend, someone who's immunocompromised, who is alive today, who would have died if we followed the U.S. course. So we we need to respect the the power of what was achieved with vaccination and with these public health measures. But as we go forward, think about the most efficient way to deploy these strategies, accepting that there's enormous fatigue now and you can't rely on these absolute lockdowns and, and, and shutdowns of various sectors, whether it's schools or businesses, to achieve the same outcome again. We need to be more efficient. And we have some specific recommendations around that. Dr. Daly, uh, are you confident or satisfied that things are being done to rectify the situation in long-term care? I mean, during the election, we keep hearing announcements of new beds being built, but beyond that, there didn't seem to be much of anything with real teeth. I, I, in fact, I think that we have made some fairly regressive uh, policy decisions uh, in relation to the long-term care sector, if we're looking specifically at Ontario, we know based on uh, recommendations and reports that have been done that we need to increase staffing levels, we need better infection and prevention, uh, better inspection and enforcement, and uh, we need to improve building infrastructure. But what we've seen since uh, the November passage of Bill 218, which essentially protected uh, a lot of providers, operators that had had really, really high rates of death. It protected them from liability. Um, and then we've also seen Bill 124 that has not allowed for um, uh, salary increases for nursing staff above 1%. Um, both of those, I think, together uh, make it very difficult to fix some of the challenges in long-term care. But then what we've also seen is that we have a huge number of licenses um, that are up for renewal as well as new buildings that are being built. And the operators that are being rewarded the most had some of the worst outcomes during COVID. So we've done many things in this province that are regressive and not progressive from a policy perspective and, quite frankly, ignore the evidence. Hmm. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's disappointing, I have to say. I, I would like to turn the conversation to the new variants, BA4 and BA5. Dr. Azak, this is... An anecdotal. I have never known so many people with COVID. Virtually every person I know that's traveled comes back with it. And uh, well, thank goodness, they're not in hospital. These are people with three and even four shots. Uh, they're sick. They're sick for like a good couple of weeks. Yeah, absolutely, Libby. I, I said this to you last time I yeah. was on. I'm one of the three-shot, otherwise healthy uh, individuals in you know in my 40s who got it, and it was really unpleasant. It was weeks of recovery uh, from it, and you know, not in hospital, but real disruption of work. We have young children. It was not easy, and I think people need to keep in mind uh, the real disruptive effects for their lives, even if they're not at risk of ending up in hospital. And, of course, the risk of long COVID, which is still really out there. We don't have a good sense of why one individual gets it and another doesn't. And so I agree with you. I know so many individuals that have been infected in the last few weeks. And the data from Ontario is telling the same story. So if you look at the percent of tests that are coming back positive for the PCRs, it's clearly rising. If you look at the number of districts within the province that have growth, that has clearly risen as well. And the wastewater signal seems to be trickling up, although it's a little bit inconsistent 
across the province. And so there's lots to tell us that this rise is happening right now. And as you said, these new variants, these new subvariants, BA4, BA5, especially, are probably part of the driving factor, along with the fact that people are understandably exhausted. But with that happening, they're reducing their protective measures, whether it's gatherings, masks, travel, all the things that people are getting back to doing, and that's increasing the risk, the exposure, and the infections. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's again, it's it's the same thing. It's like nobody wants nobody wants to deal with it. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I part of the story from this paper as well, though, is recognizing that you cannot ask people indefinitely to go through aggressive restrictions without and an insight without having the spin out effect of fatigue and and exhaustion and exasperation with these measures and we think that the messaging needs to reinforce the really core elements of protection that people can engage in now while pulling away the things that are less effective because the the population the Canadians the Ontarians that really rallied through these earlier waves I don't know if there's the will to do it as much as scientifically I can say if you do these five things, we're going to reduce the infection spread. It's very hard to get people to do that now, given how exhausted they are. Uh, exactly. Doc- Dr. Daly, what do you think? Well, in, in, in addition to that, so what we can do at an individual level in terms of protecting ourselves, getting vaccinated and all of those sorts of things. But I think we still need to think at a policy level of the ways in which we protect people. So as you point out, three weeks off of work, four weeks off of work, that to me suggests that we need, a, you know, labor protections and the ability to take uh, paid sick leave and be protected because one way to make sure that people can actually recover and they can take the rest that they need is knowing that their income is secure. So I think those sorts of policy level conversations need to continue to happen because if we've learned anything, it's that um, we need to actually have people uh, well protected and not, not in a position of having to spread COVID. Well, uh, it's not even a question of uh, not having to. I think in some cases it's choice. I mean, there there are questions. You know, are uh, you're we're told that you isolate for five days. What happens after five days? There's a question. Maybe you've got a faint line. Maybe not. I mean, Doctor Razak. Yeah, we've. I think we've talked talked about this before, and that there's some areas where the science is really imperfect. So. Right now, the five-day recommendation is not a hard and fast line. And I think at an individual level, what I would say as a physician to you, uh, to my patients and to my family members is, if you are past five days and that line is positive, that is indicating a signal that's being picked up in terms of the material, the genetic material that's used in these tests. And if you have symptoms, that is highly suggestive that you are still infectious. So please take the steps you can individually to protect those around you, the people in your workplace, uh, high-risk individuals in your family or friends uh, against being exposed to you by not being with them in a closed space, by wearing a mask if you have to see them. I know this is not the policy recommendation. I'm I'm trying to say what I think would be individually prudent around this. Obviously, there is uh, you, ideally you want alignment between these two things, but the policy decisions sometimes rely on the hard science that's available. We don't have hard science on this, although there are a lot of suggestive features to say if you have these things, you are still infectious. Well, well, who's who is is it uh, the uh, the chief medical Medical Officer of Ontario, Doctor um, Doctor Moore, or or it's kind of are, are there disagreements on this? 
There's so the 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 policy around how long you should be away from work um, does eventually. I mean, essentially, it comes down to a call from the medical officer of health from their office about what the exact policies are. But in our hybrid work environment that we have, I think there is a lot of potential for many people who have privileged positions, at least, to not go in if you are infectious. So what I'm saying is that. Obviously, you can have an you can have a provincial policy around this, but we, in the absence of a provincial policy, I think we can individually still take whatever steps we can. And there are certain things. So, just I don't want to move away from rapid tests, but there are certain things which are widely available right now, which the uptake has not been good. So, for example, our third dose vaccination percentage clearly critical for this version of the virus that's circulating. Our third dose vaccination percentage is very much middle of the pack for the G10 and has plateaued. People are not going out and getting their third dose. So there's a lot that can be done beyond some of the uncertainties around what happens in day five to day 10 of a rapid test that's mildly positive. I, I, I totally agree with you, Libby. I'm not, I'm not pushing away from that point, but I'm saying to me, there are bigger targets that are not being met right now. Hmm. Okay. Um, we're going to leave it there for now. Um, uh, and uh, we're going to take a break. In the meantime, thank you so much, Dr. Fahad Razak and Dr. Tamara Daly. You're welcome. Thanks, Libby. Great to be with you. Yeah. Great to be with you. We're taking another break. And when we come back, we're, uh, we're, we don't have a great uptake of, uh, third shots, but what about those fourth shots? Should they be expanded as well? And, uh, you know, uh, if people aren't taking their third, will they take the fourth? And, uh, all the other questions around what's going on now when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Uh, we have uh, been talking a little bit about the new variants that seem to be taking over. The fact that there are really so many people getting sick with COVID now. We're not hearing much about it. Nobody wants to talk about it. And then there's this whole question. There's a push. Some people think that we should open up fourth doses for anyone who wants one. Right now in Ontario, you have to be over 60. To get it, and the official recommendation from NASI is for people over eighty. So, what do you think? And uh, have you got, or are you going to get your fourth dose? The numbers to call four one six three six zero zero seven forty toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. And now let's bring in Dr. Prabhat Jha, an epidemiologist and faculty member at the Dalalana School of Public Health. Hi, Dr. Jha. Hello, Libby. So uh, we've just been hearing that our take-up of third doses is pretty, pretty uh, pedestrian, middling. Um, should we do we even should we be talking about making the fourth doses more available? I agree with Dr. Razak that the big priority is to get the percentage of adult Canadians with the third dose up from the. 55% or so range, we have up to about 80%. That's the single best thing that would help attenuate the next wave, which is almost certain that we're going to get a, a fall wave. What we don't know is how big it's going to be, um, how whether it's going to cause hospitalizations or uh, be reasonably mild. But the best protection against 
that next wave would be if over the summer a lot more Canadians got the third dose. And I fear our public health leaders have somewhat muddled the message by talking about the fourth dose. The fourth dose is indicated in very specific populations, like, for example, my dear mother who's uh, elderly and is immunocompromised, so she needs a fourth dose. But uh, most of us really should be focusing on getting the third dose, and we should not have the complacency that, well, I got Omicron plus, I've had two doses before, that's going to give me enough protection. Um, the evidence emerging suggests that vaccination is far, far better than infection and giving you durable, durable uh, immune responses. Well, I guess a lot of people are seeing people who have three doses on board are getting sick and they're getting quite sick. Yes, well, this is uh, the Omicron B5, the strain that's currently circulating widely in, in Ontario has been known to be a, a good uh, trick artist. It, it gets around even the protection you might get from earlier infections from Omicron. Um, but we haven't seen the uptick in hospitalizations that would be of worry. So yes, people are reporting, you know, getting sometimes um, an unpleasant illness at home, but not enough to really swamp our hospitals. Um, we know though that even if you get sick, if you have three doses on board, that further reduces your chance of getting into hospital. And that's our real goal is if we're gonna live with this virus, we probably will have to leave, live with seasonal upticks uh, like uh, we're facing in the fall. But provided we can keep our hospitals free and we can keep the long COVID to a minimum, which in fact is reduced by vaccination, then we'll be in a place to be able to coexist with the virus. Well, I mean, <laughs> I'm thinking we might be in a wave right now. We just don't know because we're not really testing very much. That's true, and we our study, the national um, ABC study, will get some results, we hope, out in a month or so of how many people have been infected by the B2 variant. Uh, the new one, the, the B5 variant, we have to wait till the fall to get some estimates. Um, but um, if it were causing a lot of illness, we would expect to start to see an uptick in hospitalizations, which we've thankfully not seen yet. So I do think it is a problem, but probably not as big as even the original Omicron. What about people who say, I mean, we keep hearing that uh, Moderna and Pfizer, they're working on uh, additions of the vaccine that will prevent infection of Omicron, that target Omicron. What about people who say, hey, I'll wait for that. This one doesn't work that well. I think the as we get more evidence, what... Uh, it appears to point to, again, it's not definitive, is that the best bet is to get vaccinated early as possible and as get at least the three doses or the three doses. The We don't know whether targeting a specific type of infection, if particularly the virus is going to mutate, will actually give you that protection. So if it were me, I would say, you know, I'd much rather get vaccinated soon. I personally believe that what we should be going to is blended vaccines. Uh, the UK has done this where they're not just giving people one type of vaccine, but they actually mix them up. 
and that gives you some cross immunity. That probably is a better bet than waiting for a boutique vaccine against a particular strain because the like mixing as in like Pfizer and Moderna together. Yeah. Oh, a Pfizer, Moderna, and the AstraZeneca in oh. combination, or you know, there's a a plant based Medigago one uh, that's not been licensed in in Canada yet, but. If we mix them up, then uh, I always thought personally, again, the evidence isn't great on this, but I personally thought that um, the, I would like to have a combination of the three, uh, three most common ones. Um, and I think uh, we, the UK has some experience on those mixed vaccines, and it appears that, as you would expect, you're kind of hitting the target in different ways, and therefore you seem to have better protection uh, so we should be thinking about that. I know the NACI is going to try to review the global evidence and see whether if we're moving to a, a booster campaign eventually, whether that would consider mixing up vaccines, not just the same one each time. Um, and we do this for other diseases. You know, try, We do it for the flu shot. We keep variating uh, the type of flu shot that we get each year based upon the previous evidence. So it's not always the same vaccine. It changes over time. Okay, Dr. Zha, we're basically out of time. Uh, Last uh, 20 seconds, what would you like to leave us with? Get a third dose. It's the single best thing to have a good summer and hopefully a good fall. Okay, on that note, thank you so much, Dr. Prabhat Zha. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.